Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. In this light-hearted talk, Michael Abair maps the changes affecting Britain between the end of the Second World War and the late 1960s. We're looking at Britain, or British politics really, from the end of the Second World War. It's really in three parts. We're going to start off with the first bit, 1945 till 1951, and I've called this the British Revolution, question mark. Most countries have a revolution from time to time. The Americans in 1776, the French in 1789, the Russians in 1918 but never the British. Or did we perhaps have just a little bit of a British sort of revolution just after the Second World War? There was certainly a dramatic change in attitude towards a lot of things. I think it's best summed up by the allegedly true story of a public school boy on a station platform snapping his fingers at a porter and shouting, my man? The porter, again allegedly, replied, oh no, that's all changed now. You can't talk to me like that anymore. Yet times had changed. The people of this country did have a different attitude to all sorts of things. Now let's have a look, a little light-hearted look, and see a little bit about how they changed. Well, the story of post-war Britain really starts, strangely, in 1941, when an aging civil servant was instructed to write a long and frankly boring report on social insurance and allied matters. I have read it cover to cover and I can assure you it's frankly rather boring, but incredibly important. He took a piece of paper out of his desk drawer. He looked at it and decided to make another cup of tea before he started. All his mates were away on active service, but here he was stuck at a desk, drinking tea and trying to write a report on social insurance. He managed to put it off for a year or so, but when in 1942 the the new year clicked over on his calendar, he found himself under pressure to get something done. All the fun was going on elsewhere. Stalingrad, Midway, North Africa, all over Southern Europe, and here he was sitting at a desk. So, as we hear it, he made himself another cup of tea. And this is how the beverage report came to be written. Now, frankly, as I said, it was pretty boring, but it was a report that changed the face of Britain and gave Britain, I think, a fairer, certainly more socialistic society. It soon became a bestseller, despite Churchill's opinion that it was something the country would never be able to afford. The British people liked the idea of attacking the five great evils of want, ignorance, disease, squalor and idleness. Well, at least those who weren't idle, they at least wanted it. It set out precise costings, which Mr. Churchill tried to ignore, and sowed the seeds for the biggest electoral shock in history. Churchill and Attlee had both wanted the old wartime coalition to continue until the war against Japan had ended, which looked as if, at that time, as if it may be quite some time away. But the rest of the Labour Party wanted the election, there and then, and Let's face it, who was Churchill to argue with the Labour's National Executive Committee? 
The great war leader, savior of the universe, up against a quietly spoken little man by the name of Atlee. But Labour's trump card, though, was the suffering that the population had faced over the previous six years, and the hope that it had all been worth something. The First World War had been meant to be the end to, to end all wars, and to lead to a land fit for heroes, but the reality was very different. It just led to the Second World War. All those hours in air raid shelters, talking and fantasizing about the kind of world they wanted, led to the election result that would have broken the swingometer if there'd been such a thing in those days. The population didn't want iPads or 100 inch televisions or new mobile phones. So they, well, it's we, isn't it? Not they, wanted fairness, equality, and a land of opportunity. There was a tremendous sense of relief that the war was over at last and that the population wanted to get away from wartime restrictions and to look for something new. The results of the election would not be declared for a further three weeks once the polls had closed, because all the votes from the forces abroad had to be included. And that didn't stop the news of the world declaring that Mr. Churchill has achieved a working majority. There were huge numbers in the armed forces and the ABCA, the Army Bureau for Current Affairs, went round holding discussion groups. Looked at from a later perspective, they did seem to have a bit of a left-leaning slant. Many people seem to feel that Churchill would continue as leader, whatever the result. Winston spent those three weeks with the presidents of America and Russia, between themselves carving up the map of Europe. Various bits of Europe were given away to Stalin, but at least we, we kept Greece, the cradle of civilization. Now, as an old Horovian and classic scholar, Churchill felt he had to keep that bit. He dashed back to London for the results, while poor old Stalin expected him back at Potsdam. Stalin could never understand to his dying day quite how Churchill had had the ballot boxes for three weeks and still lost the election. The new Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, was not exactly the person you'd choose to lead a socialist revolution. Well, you could argue there wasn't one anyway or at least not a proper one. His landslide victory, rather like a much later one, was won by a public schoolboy who'd held distinctly conservative views in his younger days and gone on to study law. Attlee had become deputy leader of the Labour Party in 1931, when almost all the senior faces in the party had lost their seats. Then when George Lansbury stood down as leader in 1935, Attlee had replaced him. Attlee never had a great charisma and was never much of a public speaker. We all know Churchill's jibes about a modest man who has plenty to be modest about, a sheep in sheep's clothing and so on. His style of leadership was to listen, delegate and compromise. He drove himself around in his own small car and always walked to lunch at his club, walked to Parliament, he held together a cabinet of super-egos, surprisingly skillfully. It included the plain-speaking union leader, Ernest Bevin, at the Foreign Office, and the tempestuous Aniron Bevan at Health. Attlee's deputy leader, Herbert Morrison, really wanted the top job after the election. And following a furious row, Attlee slunk away, or so Morrison thought. But what he did was to go straight to Buckingham Palace and asked the king to form a new government. Morrison's opportunity had gone. Apparently both King George VI and Attlee 
just stood there facing each other, each one as shy as the other, and each trying to think of something to say. Suddenly, Attlee said, allegedly, I've, uh, I've won the election. And George VI replied, yes, I heard it on the six o'clock news. And that was about it. Britain was completely broke after the war, not just hard up, but totally completely broke. Rationing was still in force, but the people assumed it would rapidly come to an end now that the war was over. Wrong. Next came bread rationing so that we could feed the poor starving Germans. People were encouraged to eat less bread and make do with potatoes. But this was soon a problem when potato rationing came in. Whale meat was tried without much enthusiasm. And then came snook. That was a fish from South Africa. The attraction of dealing with South Africa was that they could accept our pounds and not insist on payment in dollars. Snook was supposed to be a bit like perch, but it was definitely, I believe, not as nice. But as far as the great British public was concerned, it might just as well come from Mars. The great British public did not like Snook, and most of it ended up as pet food. The war in the Far East ended when the Americans, rather unsportingly, some would say, dropped their two brand new atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki just because they didn't fancy losing an estimated one million soldiers attacking mainland Japan. Hiroshima, in particular, was said to be a military centre. It is strange that similar language comes out of America to this very day. And so it was that the war was over, and a total calamity landed at the feet of Britain. Wartime United States President Roosevelt and Churchill had established the Lend-Lease Agreement, but Roosevelt had died just after the start of his fourth term as president. The new president, Truman, decided to stop Lend-Lease at once. So poor old Britain was penniless. There was though just enough cash in the coffers for one person to fly to America to beg. The bright economist John Maynard Keynes was sent to Washington and there he begged and conjoled and groveled a bit and begged a bit more. The main problem was that the Americans resisted the idea of helping Britain with their socialist policies. They felt that socialism and communism were from the same animal. Eventually Keynes got a limited amount of funding, but not on very good terms at all. But it was enough to stave off British bankruptcy for a little while. The pound was devalued. It shouldn't take very long to repay the Americans, the government said. <laughs> shouldn't take long at all little knowing that the final payment wouldn't be made until 2006. Much of Labour's ambitious domestic programme depended on public ownership of the, the means of production and distribution and exchange. Clause 4 of the party's constitution was eventually replaced by Tony Blair. Mines, water, sewerage, railways, steel production, the Port of London, the Post Office, Civil aviation all became nationalised under the iron fist of Herbert Morrison. Then in 1947, Lego was launched in Britain. Architects saw their children and grandchildren making little square houses and decided that they could do that as well. And so came prefabs, built in the newly vacated aircraft factories. Yes, little square houses, and soon 160,000 of them had been built. Just as temporary homes, of course. 
but many of them were still occupied 40 to 50 years later. Neil Kinnock was famously one of the children brought up in a prefab. Whole new towns were designed and built and local councils set about building large numbers of council flats and houses. Across the whole country, over a million and a half new homes were built during this time. It was known as the New Jerusalem. Perhaps even more impressive, though, was the start of the NHS under the guidance of Amaran Bevan. Perhaps, arguably, the most iconic Labour figure we've seen to date. A universal healthcare system from the cradle to the grave, free at the point of delivery and available to all, irrespective of income. Mind you, he had to bribe the doctors quite a bit to get them on board, stuffing their mouths with gold, as he put it. And he allowed them to carry on with their lucrative private work as well. And he allowed them to keep that appalling handwriting of theirs. Suddenly, life expectancy started to rise due to people actually seeing a doctor instead of just quietly dying. First, the pension people got worried about paying out for longer. Then the hospitals got worried because people would need treatment for longer. We'd all been expected to go on for three score and ten years. And then this NHS thing comes along and spoils it all. Labour got rid of the poor laws and brought in pensions, disability payments, family allowances, unemployment benefits, child allowances, maternity payments, funeral grants, and all the other things Old Beveridge had proposed in 1942. It's a good job he did stop for that extra cup of tea, in my opinion. In November 1947, one Princess Elizabeth had saved up enough diamond coupons to get married to Philippos Schleswig-Holstein-Sonderburg, who conveniently, very conveniently, gave up his Greek Orthodox religion and changed his name to Windsor. Then, just under 12 months later, their first son Charles was born. Britain hosted the 1948 Olympic Games. It didn't somehow seem quite right to stick with the original plan of holding it in Tokyo. They were real austerity games. Take your own sandwiches on the bus to the stadium and clear up some of the rubble on the way. Britain didn't do too well the medals, which is why when eventually in, they were in London again in 2012, it was so important. Britain was now in bronze medal position in the most important country race behind the USA and Russia, but steadily slipping back in the rankings as the empire crumbled away. The French proposed a little European iron and steel community, but Britain soon told them just what they could do with their funny little common market. The Foreign Secretary, Ernest Bevin, and not to be confused with an iron Bevin, of course, said that the Durham miners would never stand for it. Or as Attlee put it, I know them all well. We have just spent a lot of blood and treasure rescuing four of them from the other two. The United Nations was started with a meeting in London in January 1946, and very soon all the proceedings were conducted in proper BBC English. It's hard to imagine the Chinese coping with a broad Geordie accent after all. In 1946, Churchill made his Iron Curtain speech and soon showed America that Stalin had not liberated the eastern part of Europe out of kindness, to try to encourage countries from falling under Mr. Stalin's clutches, a massive assistance program known as the Marshall Plan was invented. This largely funded our NHS and social programs. 
Berlin was neatly carved up by the war victory, but the non-Russian bit, known as West Berlin, was surrounded and under siege. A huge airlift took place, which not only saved the population there, but also earned Freddie Laker enough money to start his own airline and take British holidaymakers abroad to places they'd only dreamed of going to. A sort of 1960s Ryanair. Four months later, NATO was formed. Russia tested its first atomic bomb, hardly abiding by the rules of cricket, but then what do you expect? And that was the start of the Cold War, which went on for decades and dominated the economies and military thinking of Europe and the United States. India was the next problem. It was generally accepted that India had played a very big part in the Allied victory, but had never been asked if it really wanted to take part in the war. It had just been assumed. It was generally accepted that the payback was that they would get independence. Lord Mountbatten was sent to India as Viceroy, normally a pretty easy number with lots of elephants and tiger shooting, but almost before his valet had taken his slippers out of his suitcase, things started to warm up. Those slippers never made it to the fireside. The main problem, as so often in history, was religion. There were Hindus and there were Muslims, and all of them were scattered around the entire subcontinent. Mountbatten came up with a solution, one main bit that he thought he'd better call India. A smaller bit on the top left-hand corner, still fair-sized, that he decided to call Pakistan. Top right-hand corner, East Pakistan we now know it as Bangladesh. Unfortunately, East and West Pakistan were getting on for 1,500 miles apart. Never mind, he thought, all of India can be Hindu and all of the two Pakistans can be Muslim. That's easy. Well, unfortunately, it wasn't as easy as all that, as huge numbers of the population were stuck in the wrong bit. Back came Mountbatten to Britain, but it's unclear whether his valet remembered to pack those slippers. I don't propose going today into the, the terrible problems that were created by this arbitrary line on the map, but suffice to say that now, over 70 years later, the Indians and Pakistanis still play cricket against each other. In 1949, the word British was dropped from the British Commonwealth, so that we could pretend it wasn't really an imperial throwback. Not all former colonies joined the Commonwealth, a few here who didn't and see if you can see any political similarities iraq kuwait jordan somalia sudan israel maybe somebody managed to lose their application forms perhaps when in 1948 british nationality act was passed giving free rights of entry into britain for any commonwealth citizen it was expected that a couple of nice canadian lumberjacks and a couple of nice Australian cricketers might come over. But nobody realised the apt naming of the Empire Windrush. Like a rush of wind, Commonwealth citizens started to rush over here. The Empire Windrush, what a truly imperial sounding name, had originally been called the Monte Rosa and was built for the Hamburg Sudamerica Shipping Company in 1930 and was later a troop ship for the Germans when they invaded Norway, then went on to be a support ship for the Tirpitz in Norway until she was taken as war booty. The problem was certainly not the people who came, most definitely not. It was the shortage of housing, food and opportunities 
and all this led tragically to racism. And so came the 1950 election, and so came the birth of me. Labour planned to add meat, sugar and cement to their list of nationalised industries, but the electorate decided it, it was not sure. They elected Attlee's Labour government back in again, but with a very tiny majority this time. Sterling was devalued again, and another war was starting. Dean Rusk, a future American Secretary of State, was busy drawing a straight line across Korea in his old school atlas, when he noticed that the 38th parallel was already marked in. So he decided that that should be the line between communist North Korea and non-communist South Korea. They managed to spend three years fighting their very nasty war, which involved 20 countries, including Britain, of course. First, the South virtually overran the North. Then China came in and the North virtually overran the South. And before you could blink, well over a million people had died over three years that the war lasted before they eventually decided in 1952 to call it a day and go back to the old two sides of the 38th parallel. Britain had poured shed loads of money and conscripted soldiers into the Korean War money the country couldn't afford. So the Deputy Prime Minister, Herbert Morrison, decided to have a party, a big party in London, alongside the Thames. He decided to call it the Festival of Britain and to hold it on the centenary of the Great Exhibition. The highlights included the Skylon, a sort of um, cigar-shaped contraption that had no visible means of support, like the British economy. The Dome of Discovery, a rather magnificent dome on the banks of the River Thames, which had no real use. Herbert Morrison bounced his grandson on his knee and told him all about this wonderful dome had the idea for. That grandson must have taken in all that he said, because he was Peter Mandelson, who also built a rather useless dome on the banks of the river 50 years later. So now we come to part two, 1951 to 1963, the ruling class loses respect. The cost of the Korean War left Britain in financial ruin again, so the cabinet agreed to start charging for some small aspects of the NHS. How about charging just a little bit, of course, for, say, dental treatment or for spectacles, they said. A major row occurred, which was eventually agreed that this was what they would do. Nye Bevan, the father of the NHS, resigned in disgust, saying that if Labour did that, the Conservatives would be able to go much further. And so came the next general election. Winston got back in, although Labour got more than a million more votes than the Conservatives. But Churchill won several key seats. That made two occasions when he became Prime Minister without winning the popular vote. It's interesting to look back at the six years of Attlee's government and see what they achieved. They took key industries under state control, rightly or wrongly. They started the NHS and a raft of social policies to go with it. They managed to get through the aftermath of the Second World War, got out of Palestine and India, avoided a war with Russia, and were heavily involved at the start of both the United Nations and NATO. But still biscuits were rationed. I leave it to you to decide if it was a little bit of a stiff upper lip kind of revolution. As I said, the Conservatives got back in 
under the 77-year-old Winston Churchill, and by now the Liberals were a very minor party. In February 1952, King George VI died, which meant that his daughter, Princess Elizabeth, and her husband had to return from their holiday in Kenya to become queen and consort. Whether the young couple were offered an upgrade by the airline has not been recorded. The young queen stood out in stark contrast to the aging prime minister and his cabinet, who were mostly relics from the war cabinet and mostly members of the House of Lords. The heir apparent was Anthony Eden, who had been foreign secretary in the pre-war government, but had resigned in protest at Neville Chamberlain's appeasement of Hitler. Unfortunately, history has a nasty habit of repeating itself. In this case, half a century later with Messrs Blair and Brown. Churchill had a couple of strokes, but his doctor thought it would be better for him to keep him occupied, to reduce the effect of his depression, his black dog as he called it. Poor old Eden sat patiently waiting for the old man to retire, but nothing happened. He even married Winston's niece. But the wedding presents did not include the keys to number 10. The coronation occurred the next year, 1953, and to celebrate a New Zealander, Edmund Hillary, together with Tenzing Norgay, climbed Everest. Roger Bannister ran a mile in under four minutes. Ian Fleming wrote his first James Bond novel. A new Agatha Christie mystery opened in the West End. They all said, this mouth's truck thing will never last. Britain flew the world's first passenger jet aircraft, the Comet. But in retrospect, the greatest achievement of all that time was when Watson and Crick discovered the structure of the DNA molecule. We British were still being taught at school about the red bits on the map. Churchill announced that Britain now had its own atomic bomb as America turned a bit selfish after the war and ended its cooperation on developing it. Our first atomic bomb was tried out off the coast of Western Australia on board an old naval ship, HMS Plym, as in Plymouth. Sadly for the economy, there wasn't much scrap value left in the ship after that. So Britain became the third atomic power after America and Russia, which had been generously donated the recipe by a group of Cambridge undergraduates with degrees in spying. Stalin died in 1953. He was succeeded, of course, by Nikita Khrushchev. The British economy was slowly starting to recover from the war, but Labour and the Conservatives had very little difference in either home or foreign policies. Three civil servants, one of them the father of subsequent Labour cabinet minister Charles Clark, boldly devised a cunning plan to let the pound find its own level against other currencies. Now, this would have substantially increased unemployment and may have meant the end of our welfare state, but would probably have saved our post-war industrial base, our ability to make and export things. It didn't happen, though. By this time, Churchill, the great war leader, was happy to go along with things for a quiet life. He became a compromiser and would avoid conflict at any opportunity. This led to the rise of the power of the trades unions. That funny little economic community across the channel was paying dividends for its founder members, and soon Volkswagen Beetles were more popular than Morris Miners. Churchill's black dog became worse, and he became more and more eccentric. He did manage to collect his Nobel Prize for Literature, 
putting him, I suppose, alongside such other Conservative Party authors as Anne Widdicombe, Edwina Curry, and of course, Geoffrey Archer. As 1955 came in, even Churchill felt it might be time for a younger man to step in. But who should it be, he asked his deputy, Anthony Eden, who incidentally had been promised the job back in 1942. But eventually, Eden did get the job. In came another old Etonian, made the change from Churchill, who went to Harrow, I suppose. At last, Eden was the bride after many years as the bridesmaid. But rather like a situation 50-odd years later, it was not to be as good as it sounded. The 1956 Suez Crisis was just too much for him. After a revolution in Egypt, Gamal Abdel Nasser became leader of Egypt in 1954. Britain and America had promised money to build a dam across the River Nile, but withdrew their offer. Nasser decided to nationalise the Suez Canal, as we all know, going through yet yeah, Egypt. Well, Mr. Nasser had no intention of stopping the ships going through the canal. He needed the money too much. Most of Britain's oil came through the canal and Eden was livid. He had a meeting with a French who, after all, had built the damn thing in the first place. And they devised a plan. What they would do would be that Israel would be secretly asked to invade Egypt. And then Britain and France, enraged by this, would just have to invade Egypt to secure the canal for the good of the rest of the world, of course. Easy. Unfortunately, the secret came out a bit when thousands of troops started appearing in nearby Cyprus. Even worse, the American president, Eisenhower, was up for re-election the following month, and he had not been told about the plan. Everything started as planned, but very soon Eisenhower got the Anglo-French plan condemned by the United Nations General Assembly, and America threatened to sell its substantial reserves of sterling, which would have meant a massive crash for the economy. Eden called a halt when the troops were within a whisker of achieving their objectives. British prestige was shattered and Eden was humiliated. Britain's image of itself as a world power was over. Russia decided that if Britain and France could invade Egypt, they could invade Hungary, where communism was not going down too well at that point. And the United Nations felt it had no real answer to that one. Eden's health deteriorated due to the stresses of Suez, and Harold Macmillan, who'd repeatedly assured Eden that the Americans would have no objections whatsoever, nimbly took over. Another old Etonian with grey hair and a moustache, who jumped over Rab Butler in the batting order. Macmillan, like Churchill, had an American mother and worked hard to patch up the relationship between the two countries. Britain just had to learn to play second fiddle to the United States, despite its imperial past. This imperial past, though, was slipping away steadily. The Gold Coast, nowadays Ghana, became independent in 1957, with Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Tanganyika and many other countries following soon after. Places like Rhodesia and Kenya were harder though because the expat communities refused to accept majority rule. In Kenya, the Mau Mau rebellion was put down rather brutally. 13,000 Africans were killed during the hostilities, compared with 95 Europeans. Supermac announced in South Africa that a wind of change is blowing across this continent whether we like it or not, and they didn't like it.
cuts in Britain's crippling defence budget and the abolition of national service reduced the numbers in the army from 690,000 to 395,000. Look how many we've got today. It's around about 80-something thousand. The Prime Minister knew he had to balance the books, but flatly refused to cut public spending, which antagonised the Chancellor, Peter Thornycroft, who promptly resigned along with two Treasury ministers, Enoch Powell and Nigel Birch. Macmillan announced that it was just a little local difficulty, which made him look even more unflappable. He'd come to prominence in 1953, when he'd fulfilled the Conservative pledge of building 300,000 new houses per year. Although 300,000 houses had indeed been built, something close to 75% of them had been built by Labour local councils. Never mind. He got good publicity being photographed in a council house and somehow managed to avoid asking where the ballroom was. But then he got into difficulties when the 1957 Rent Act was introduced. This made it a lot easier for landlords to evict tenants and increase rents. I won't go into much detail there. Well, the most notorious, anyway, of many dreadful landlords using this was one Peter Rackman, who used to split flats and then split them again and then split them again and cram immigrants in and charge them astronomically high rents for tiny, tiny premises. He did manage to look after a couple of his tenants better, though. A couple of girls known as Mandy Rice Davis and Christine Keeler, who you'll be amazed to hear we're going to hear a little, little bit about later. On the whole, though, most people felt things were getting slowly better. And in the run up to the 1959 election, Supermac announced, let us be frank about it. Most of our people have never had it so good. He was re-elected with a majority of over 100. Hugh Gateskull, the Labour leader, had made some rash and, frankly, foolhardy promises that shattered his credibility a bit. Soon after the election, he announced that he planned to end the famous Clause 4, which was about commitment to public ownership of business. But he was soundly defeated on that one, which divided the Labour Party even more. Labour thought they'd never had it so bad. But then at long came Mr Profumo. Now, I mustn't get ahead of myself here. Macmillan was sure that Britain's future lay in Europe rather than the Commonwealth, the old empire. Unfortunately for him, he'd not adequately considered a certain chap called Mr. de Gaulle, who didn't think much of us getting closer to America. He also felt that Britain was patronising to France, the dominant power in the European common market at that time, as Germany was still recovering from the war. Macmillan invited de Gaulle to his private home for talks, but things got very difficult when the cook refused to have de Gaulle's emergency blood supply stored in her fridge. Matters got worse still when they went out onto the estate shooting. Macmillan apparently bagged over six dozen birds, but the Frenchman had already surrendered to the pheasants previously, so he couldn't take part. It should have come as no surprise when in January 1963, de Gaulle announced a firm and definitive non. Britain again looked foolish and humiliated. The French refused to consider what Britain had done for them over the recent decades. And in a calm and measured response, Princess Margaret cancelled her proposed trip to Paris. Ah, that taught them a lesson, didn't it? 
De Gaulle's fears about Britain and America getting too close were mainly based on an arms deal agreed in Nassau between the elderly and rather staid figure of Macmillan and the youthful American by the name of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Britain had tried hard to develop a delivery system for its atomic bombs, its nuclear, nuclear deterrent. We had developed the Blue Streak missile, but despite the considerable efforts of my uncle, who led the testing team in West Wales, it never quite came up to scratch. The trouble was the fuel used, he, he always said. It took a long time to load and could not be stored in the missiles. So it was fine as long as, long as the Russians agreed to give 10 days notice of World War III starting. It was more of a white elephant than a blue streak, really. Instead, Macmillan invested heavily in the American Skybolt missile system, with Britain providing warheads. But this program was uh, soon cancelled by Kennedy. Eventually, of course, we ended up with Polaris as our independent British deterrent. A young-looking Harold Wilson said, It is neither British independent nor a deterrent. Talking of bombs, the CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, was formed in February 1958 at Westminster Central Hall. They organised marches between London and the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment at Aldermaston in their uniforms of duffel coats, college scarves and thick-rimmed glasses. They would have liked to march to the American nuclear nu submarine base, at, but Holy Lock near Glasgow was rather a long way to go. Nye Bevan was opposed to unilateral nuclear disarmament and split the Labour Party again with his assertion that and I quote, it would send a British foreign secretary naked into the conference chamber. Now, when you think of Earl Hume, later known as Alec Douglas Hume, you can see his point. You wouldn't want to send him naked into any chamber, would you? Macmillan was getting paranoid about plots against him from within his own party. And in July 1962, he sacked seven cabinet ministers and nine junior ministers in what became known as the Night of the Long Knives. One minister who survived that would certainly change things a bit, a certain Mr. Profumo. He keeps cropping up, but we'll come back to him in a bit. Now we're on to part three, the last part, 1963 to 1968. The new look Britain begins. Hugh Gateskull died, sadly, aged 56 in January 1963. That was the dreadful winter when the snow started on Boxing Day. I'm sure a lot of us remember that. It stayed on the ground for months. Gateskull had died from natural causes, but that didn't stop rumours from flying around about him being killed by the KGB so that their man, Harold Wilson, could become party leader and later prime minister. Wilson was in America at the time of Gateskull's death and returned immediately to avoid any chance of George Brown jumping in ahead of him. Brown was a good man with a good brain, but suffered from a liking of alcohol. James Harold Wilson was, at that time, a rare thing in British politics, a grammar school boy. He'd gone on to become a brilliant scholar at Oxford, then worked for the civil service during the war, and was a cabinet minister by the age of 31. But now we get back to the bit that we've been waiting for for a while. The scandal of the decade, probably the scandal of the century. John Profumo was the husband of Valerie Hobson, a well-respected actress and entertainer. And he was also Her Majesty's Minister for War. Back in July 1961, he'd been a guest of Lord Astor 
at his country house, when apparently just strolling through the grounds, he stumbled on a number of young women in the swimming pool, naked. One of them, Christine Keeler, seemed to make something of an impression on him. Now, uh, let's just assume that that was probably down to her views on the use of battlefield nuclear weapons or something like that. You know, I wouldn't want to suggest anything more than that. Keeler was too young to vote, but she was old enough to bring a government down. The security services were watching Keeler. Now, whether they were actually watching her naked swimming, I don't know. She was thought to be sleeping with a Russian naval attaché, known to you and me as a spy, of course. The cabinet secretary advised Profumo to end the relationship immediately, which he did only four weeks later, with a handwritten letter. Now, there was no chance of that ever getting used against him, was there? Nothing happened for over a year until in a completely, totally unrelated trial in which Keeler was a witness, rumours started to circulate about the Minister for War sharing a girlfriend with a Russian spy. So in March 1963, Profumo announced to the House of Commons that, quote, there was no impropriety whatsoever in his acquaintance with Miss Keeler, unquote. He lied to Parliament. Now, nowadays, we'd probably say we don't believe a word of that, but those days were different. Things were taken at face value much more in those days, 60-odd years ago. Mr Wilson asserted that he did not care about the private lives of ministers, but was deeply concerned about national security. The Europeans, especially the French and Italians, couldn't see what all the fuss was about and wondered why Macmillan hadn't slept with her as well anyway. Only the Americans made a fuss abroad. Their squeaky clean, morally perfect president, Kennedy, was a picture of fidelity, of course, and was due to visit Britain shortly. They certainly wouldn't want him to get caught up in all that. At home, the media was in a frenzy, poring over every sordid detail and making up what they didn't know. Profumo resigned to spend the rest of his life working for charitable causes and was later awarded the CBE for these works. This affair seemed to change the public's views of their politicians. No longer was there deference to mighty politicians. And in came horror of horrors, satire. In September 1963, Lord Denning published his inquiry into the Profumo business and said that there was very little chance of a security breach. Hmm. But he did criticise Macmillan. On the eve of the party conference, the Prime Minister announced that he was suffering from inoperable prostate cancer, incorrectly as it turned out, and he stood down. At this conference, Rab Butler, Reginald Maudling and Lord Hailsham all tried, but all failed to attract support. It was the 14th Earl Hume who unexpectedly came out top. He was another old Etonian. He went even further. He'd even gone on to marry the headmaster's daughter. He was born in Mayfair to a very wealthy and aristocratic family, and to date, he is the only Prime Minister we've had who's played first-class cricket. Yeah, that's an interesting fact. He was allowed to relinquish his hereditary title following the example of Lord Stansgate, who became Anthony Wedgwood Ben, or later still Tony Ben. Hume was the last of our public school-educated Prime Ministers for a little while. It was not until Tony Blair that we had another. It was the turn of the grammar school boys and girl. 
Looking back at this time in history, the British do appear to have been pretty contented, and some say that there was more freedom of speech in those days. They, perhaps I should really say we, led a simpler life than we do today, and generally were happy with our lot in life. In fact, the population of the Isle of Wight liked it so much that they decided to stay in the 1950s. As we progressed in the 1960s, times seemed to change. Music changed, fashion changed, and social attitudes changed. Our attitudes to divorce, children outside marriage, what you could sum up as family values, and so much else seemed to start to change. Somehow the balance of payments was less important than the new record from the Beatles or the Stones. They used to say that if you couldn't remember the 1960s, you weren't there. But to our generation, we could easily say that if you don't remember the 1960s, you're too young. But if we really do look back, most of the fun and the frolics of the 60s seem to be happening to other people. I can say that with personal experience. In those heady days, the Russians and Americans were in the space race and we well, well, we did invent the hovercraft, I suppose. Harold Wilson announced to the nation that we were entering a technological age. The trouble was that when we really did get mobile phones, laptops and memory sticks, we'd work even longer. No peace on the train home anymore. So Sir Alec Douglas Hume, as the Prime Minister was now called, decided that he had to keep up with Labour on the idea that we were in an age of technology. So he appointed a new minister for science. He chose another old Etonian, why wouldn't you? A Latin scholar called Quinton Hogg. Suddenly though, youth was important. There was a youthful President Kennedy, a youthful Harold Wilson, and the start of a youth culture. By the end of 1963, Kennedy had been assassinated. But that was the week that was, TW3, summarized his choice before the electorate as dull Alec versus smart Alec. Hume decided to delay the election until the last possible moment, 15th of October 1964. It was more than five years since the last election, and frankly, things had changed. Unfortunately, the way people looked on television mattered more. And however nicely we try to put it, Sir Alec had a face that looked like a skull. Sorry, Sir Alec, but I'm afraid it is a fact. When the election did take place, Labour got in with a tiny majority of just four seats. The result was even closer than the policies of the two parties. Wilson had even persuaded the BBC to delay broadcasting Steptoe and Son until after the polls had closed to try and get as many voters as possible out. Just after the polls closed, two world-changing events occurred. The Chinese tested their first atomic bomb and Khrushchev was toppled in Moscow. Now, a while ago, we looked at the 1957 Rent Act and Rachmanism. Now in the 1960s, a new housing blight started to hit Britain. High-rise blocks of flats started to rise all over the place. Slum clearance schemes were rife and residents were being put into high-rise blocks with no sense of community, but enjoying the pleasures of crumbling concrete, high alumina cement, damp from the condensation. They were also good places for undesirables to hide. Some even had a gas supply, which can be rather nasty if the lady underneath you leaves the gas on and there's an explosion. 
no, those streets in the sky were never going to really work that well. Nobody really asked the people what they thought. And on the rare occasions that they did, nobody took any notice. Property developers would just stuff brown envelopes full of cash into the hands of planning committees. It was a scandal such as this involving the architect John Poulsen and the leader of Newcastle City Council, T. Dan Smith, that brought down Reginald Maudling. One modernist architect, Erno Goldfinger, who lived in Hampstead, so annoyed his neighbour Ian Fleming by designing these blocks that he became immortalised of one of the nastiest characters in the James Bond novels and films. Motorways started to carve their way through the countryside and railway lines closed under Dr Richard Beeching. Yes, transport was changing too. We know a lot about the workings of the 1960s Labour governments, as three ministers were busy writing diaries, Tony Benn, Barbara Castle and Richard Crossman. When Jim Callaghan, as Chancellor, went to his new desk, he found the country was virtually bankrupt. Again, history repeated itself when Osborne became Chancellor. Whilst filling the fridge with beer and sandwiches, Wilson and Callaghan decided not to devalue sterling. They didn't ask the Commons or even the Cabinet, they just decided to do it. They knew the campaign for the next general election had effectively started, as their majority was so tiny that didn't dare take a bold move that would diminish the standing of Britain further. They just couldn't admit that Britain was bankrupt. Churchill died at the beginning of 1965. He'd only retired as a member of Parliament the previous year, having become one under Queen Victoria. His state funeral involved riverside cranes bowing down and over 300,000 people shuffled past his coffin. He expressly insisted that just to upset de Gaulle and the French, his cortege should travel through Trafalgar Square, past the statue of Nelson, and end up at Waterloo Station. Now, we teenagers were happy as we didn't have to put up with crackles of Radio Luxembourg anymore and could listen to our music on the pirate radio stations. And then eventually the BBC agreed to start Radio One. Anybody remember the first song they played on it? Flowers in the Rain by The Move. Rolling Stones opened their first top of the pops with a young, rather shifty-looking figure known as Jimmy Savile as presenter. The next election duly arrived in 1966. Harold Wilson increased his majority to 97 seats. Many of the new influx of MPs were middle-class, university-educated people, in contrast to the majority of working people who were their predecessors. I think it's fair to say that Wilson was a disappointment as Prime Minister. He seemed to be there because he wanted to be Prime Minister rather than because he had a long-term view of taking the country forward. He didn't trust his cabinet and his only confidant was his secretary and according to rumours his lover, Marcia Williams. One good thing happened in 1966 was that colour television started. Oh yes, and then England won the Football World Cup, didn't they? Roy Jenkins was the Home Secretary in this government. He was behind a lot of the social legislation passed under this parliament, including bills on abortion, homosexuality and censorship. Mary Whitehouse started the Clean Up TV campaign in 1965, with 2,000 members apparently all writing simultaneously to the BBC. Perhaps the most significant advance during this time was the introduction of the contraceptive pill. It had been around in the early 60s but by the middle 1960s, it was more widely available. 
Brilliant though he arguably was, Roy Jenkins was never really cut out for the top job as he enjoyed wine and women a bit too much. The fiery red-headed Barbara Castle as Minister for Transport brought in the breathalyzer, even though she couldn't drive herself. Jim Callaghan was the only politician to have occupied all four of the top jobs, Prime Minister, Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary and Chancellor of the Exchequer, even though he never went to university. Now, having beaten Germany at football, Wilson decided to reapply for membership of the European club. The Prime Minister was shocked not to be instantly welcomed into membership. But then we have to bear in mind that the membership secretary was, of course, one C. de Gaulle. To show willing, we decided to go metric and to change our money to a slightly easier format for foreigners to understand. Another case of Wilson's misjudgment on foreign affairs was over Rhodesia. Its leader, Ian Smith, had declared independence unilaterally. These talks got nowhere. He tried again in supporting America over Vietnam, but got little or no support. His attempts at foreign diplomacy were not really helped by his deputy and foreign secretary, George Brown. And one of my favorite stories about him concerns the time when, at a reception in honor of the Belgian government, his speech said, I quote, while you have all been whining and dining here tonight, the British army has been defending Europe. And I ask you, where are the soldiers of Belgium? They're all in the brothels of Brussels, unquote. Diplomatic? Well, there we are. Another even better one took place in Latin America. Brown spotted a striking figure in a flowing crimson gown, just as the band started to play. He rushed up and asked for a dance. The reply was, there are three reasons, Mr. Brown, why I will not dance with you. The first is that I fear you have had a bit too much to drink. The second is that this is not a waltz, but the Peruvian national anthem. And the third reason we may not dance is that I am the Cardinal Archbishop of Lima. But despite this, when Brown did leave the government, he was a real loss. On many issues, history did show him to be right. He was a good man, essentially. In 1900, way back in 1900, a pound had been worth $4.87. By 1967, it was worth $2.80, but it was still too high. And yet another devaluation brought this down to $2.40, which upset the Commonwealth countries who kept their reserves in sterling. Soon the poll ratings showed the government to be slipping fast and Callaghan resigned. Wilson made his famous speech through a fog of pipe smoke about the value of the bound in your pocket is not being affected. Most of us knew full well it would be. America begged Britain to join them in the Vietnam War. Just two brigades and your financial troubles will be over, Lyndon Baines Johnson said. But it got him nowhere. On this matter, Wilson's action was the best answer in the world. He ignored it. He judged that the Anglo-American relationship was just not worth it. And so no British soldiers were deployed to Vietnam and obviously none died there. As a side issue, I do know that we did actually though supply some aircraft, spy aircraft to help the Americans. So in a very small degree, we were involved, but no soldiers on the ground. Soon, the streets of London, and particularly around the American embassy, 
were descending into chaos due to Britain's perceived support of America, even though we'd refused to help. The violent response by the police made things even worse. 1968 was definitely a tumultuous year around the world with near revolution in Paris, riots in most of Europe and America, Russian tanks in Prague, the Rolling Stones releasing Street Fighting Man, and to cap it all, Cliff Richards singing congratulations. He got second place in the Eurovision Song Contest, and he would have come first, except that General Franco rigged the votes of the Spanish jury and Spain one by one point. And to me, that sounds like a very good place to end. Thank you very much indeed. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening.